But today I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah 55. Tim mentioned last week that he gained permission to uh, depart from the book of Isaiah, even though what he preached about is very consistent with what we have been studying in the book of Isaiah. And because of that, uh, I have taken the liberty to uh, steal a little bit of the sermon title from him, um, that while the official title of the message today is Great Invitation, which I think that you'll probably find in any commentary or study Bible that actually uh, puts any type of subject matter uh, summarized before the chapter. Uh, I thought what I would do is, is say that this is going to be uh, the gospel that we wanted versus the gospel that we need, part two. Uh, he has, uh, through his message last week, uh, certainly has prepared our, our thoughts going into Isaiah chapter 55 as he preached from Isaiah 54, then preached from Galatians chapter 4, and today we come to this very uh, special portion of Scripture. But let's ask the Lord for help. Father, thank you that you have not only given us your word, but Lord, you've also given us your spirit to teach us your word. That left alone, your word would mean nothing to us, for the natural man cannot understand anything unless the Spirit teaches us. So, Father, we pray today that you would open eyes and ears so that we might see and understand and that we would believe, ultimately producing fruit that would give praise and glory to you. Father, thank you for the grace that has been given, the kindness that's been extended, the love that has been demonstrated. We thank you, Lord, now that we can study your word and worship you as we do so. So help us today to understand it, to, to put it together, to make it uh, fit with everything else, to, to make sense of the world in which we live and ultimately the ultimate design and plan you have for your creation. Help us, Lord, today as we study. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Today, uh, as Tim showed us the gospel that saves versus the gospel that we wanted, and that primarily being a gospel of the flesh, as Paul expounds in Galatians chapter 4, comparing uh, the two sons of Abraham and describing uh, the two ways in which we seek salvation, I thought it would be helpful for us today, before we look at Isaiah chapter 55, to look at some other gospels that we want. Gospels that are just as much anti-gospel as what the true gospel that we see not only in the New Testament, but also Old Testament throughout Scripture. And the first one is an easy one. You probably would be very familiar with the thought that would go along with the prosperity or the success gospel. A gospel that focuses primarily on earthly gratification. When we have, in our sinfulness, looked at the circumstances in which we live. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough health. I don't have uh, sufficient uh, stability in my job. My family is a wreck. Uh, and then we go extending it beyond into uh, the culture in which we live. And in my lifetime, I've seen a gospel that's been tainted, uh, that's been called the social gospel, in which we've taken the, the kindness and the concerns and the meeting of needs that Jesus Christ teaches us about and replacing it with the true gospel. 
I've seen it try to meet different other cultural ends in which we see uh, all different types of uh, atrocities taking place around the world and yet we try to, instead of giving the gospel, we try to rename it something else or try to identify it as something different. As if somehow we can find some gratification in this life and this life alone because that's really all we're focused on. And that becomes an anti-gospel that we can easily fall prey to. There's also a second type in which we're looking for, uh, trying to find our own way. In other words, you, you've heard the term, just follow your heart. Uh, don't really worry about absolute truth so much, but just, you'll find your path. Uh, don't, don't be so hard on our kids. Don't, don't be so absolute about all these things from Scripture, because after all, it just we need to find our own way. We need to discover who we are. We need to figure out what is true and what isn't, what's going to be practical. Uh, in, in, in some areas within what we would term Christianity, we have exchanged the true gospel with this anti-gospel in which we just pursue our feelings. If you have a felt need, then that's what we need to address. And, and we'll come to that. If we just work at it, if we focus on it long enough, we'll figure out what the answer is. And we'll find our own path. And I know that even in my ministry, there have been those who have come back to church, so to speak. That they grew up in church, they got old enough to go to college, or they got married and they did their thing. And then they realized that once they had kids and once they realized they were in a job and all these types of things, life got serious. So let me go back and, and find my way back to, to church. And, and somehow that becomes a, a way of finding their way. A third thing is finding self-worth. If we could just figure out us. If we could... In our own way as human beings, because we are very gifted and talented, we can study enough, we can figure out enough about the world in which we live, and we can scientifically explain everything, we can rationalize everything, we can get together and devise philosophies that somehow answer all the tough questions, and if we just give ourselves enough time, we can, through being self-centered, figure out what the gospel is. And then probably the most common around the world is one that is just heavily devoted to continual restless ritual. One in which we just keep doing the same patterns, hoping that we can please this deity. If we can follow this prescription, if we can just follow all of these ceremonies, if we can uh, make sure that we honor every God that we can identify or think of or conceive of, and if we can keep doing this over and over and over and over again, even though that doesn't provide any confidence in our life about the afterlife, that we can somehow please this deity so that when it comes to the end of my life, or in some cultures when I come to the next life, that somehow I can get better and better. And so it becomes a, just a ceaseless strife in pursuing something beyond ourselves. Now we could divide these up or we could find even other anti-gospels. But instead of spending too much time on that, I would like for us to consider what it is that we truly need.
This is not a new message. This is not anything differently than what Tim or any other preacher has preached from. But just a reminder from Isaiah chapter 55. Let's begin by reading the first five verses together. As we consider, number one, that we need a gospel that's eternal in nature, not one that's temporal. Isaiah says in verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Here the invitation begins. In the English Standard Version from which I read, it begins with the word come. In many other translations, it's a better translation which uses a two-letter word. And you may hold, be holding one in your lap that says so. It's, it begins with ho. H-O. There's a term for, hey, over here, let me get your attention. Kind of like a barker at a carnival who's struggling to get people to come into their little booth to play their game or to, to ride their ride. Hey! That's what Isaiah is literally doing. And he has an invitation for which he is trying to gather everybody's attention. After he gets your attention, he's asking, what are you thirsty for? What are you hungry for? For he says, come, ho, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Sounds a little like John chapter 4, right? I couldn't get Tim's teaching as we were, have been going through the Gospel of John in our equip hour. And as he was talking about John chapter 4, and I wasn't anticipating preaching from chapter 55, but I was thinking about Isaiah 55 as he was going through John chapter 4. Now that we're going through chapter 55 of Isaiah, I'm thinking about John chapter 4, back and forth, because I'm thinking about this water. Come, drink, you who are thirsty, come to the waters. He continues... Those of you who don't have any money, now that gets your attention, right? A little suspicious in the day and way age in which we live because you know there's always going to be a hook. You don't have to have any money, but guess what? You're going to need the rest of your life to pay for this. Or you're going to need every hour of your life to fulfill this. But not only those of you who are thirst come, but those of you who don't have any money, come. Buy and eat. There's a restaurant that's offering that deal. I would stay away because there's probably a reason why it doesn't cost anything to eat there or to drink there. However, this invitation from God through Isaiah 
It's saying, come, buy wine and milk without money. There, there's, no, there's no price for you to pay. Now, he's identifying these people as, now, the money that you have, what you're, what, those of you who have currency, you're spending it on things that don't satisfy. But here's an offer that something that will satisfy that won't cost you anything. It's been provided for you. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me. Listen. Please open your ears. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Lean your ear over. Listen to what I have to say. Hear me that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. In other words, I will feed you as John says to the lady at the well in John chapter 4, you will never thirst again. You will never hunger. You will be satisfied. Have you ever been that hungry or that thirsty? Have you ever been at a point in your life where you were wondering where your next meal was coming from? There's a lot of people in this world that have. I cannot count myself among them. Even when I was growing up, I wouldn't have had the intelligence to realize whether or not my meal was coming. I was just expecting it because it had always been provided. And graciously, God has always taken care of me, even up to this point in my life. And perhaps your situation is similar. I've never thought once, even though I may have been far removed from it, never thought once about I would thirst to death. I've been very thirsty. Growing up, growing up on a farm, you got hot and you got thirsty. There was an absence of fluid in your body and your body and your brain was telling you, you need something to drink. But there was never a time in my life where I felt, I think I'm actually going to turn to dust. And because of that, I may have not been quite so receptive to if somebody had been saying, hey, I've got something that will keep you from from being hungry again. I've got something that will keep you from ever being thirsty the rest of your life. I've never been so desperate in my physical, earthly, human life that I've ever considered the fact that I really need. I've just assumed. I've taken it for granted. If you carry that over into the spiritual realm, I'm far more destitute. I've spent much of my life, even as a believer, not really concerned with my spiritual appetite. I grew up in church. There's not a passage of scripture that I would not be to some extent familiar with. There are very few doctrines, if any, that I have not taken a considerable amount of time to think through. But for me to consider that there is actually a rich food out there for my spirit to feed on that I will never hunger again and that there is certain spiritual life that comes from water that will never cause me to thirst again. I spend very little time thinking about that. As we were going through the confession prayer. 
I'm reminded over and over again in my life that I take too much for granted and I don't take nearly as seriously enough that which is true. And I hear Isaiah say, come, everyone who thirsts, and I said, that's for them. Those of you who are hungry, those of you who don't have any food or money to buy food, uh, that's for them. And I find myself starving and thirsting spiritually because of my own neglect. Because the invitation is here. How much more so would the nation of Israel who is headed for captivity in the coming decades reading back over and listening back over to this message from Isaiah being reminded that the reason why you're in exile is because you're spiritually destitute and you need water. You need food. And here's an invitation. What do you waste your money on? And I'm not talking about your financials. That, that's a sermon in and of itself. But what are you spirit spending your spiritual currency on? What are you spending your life's currency on? Is it something that's temporal in nature? Where does your anxiety and your strife come from in life? Does it come from things that you can't control in this life? I bet it is. Does the concerns and the worries and the doubts and the fears that you have, does it come from things that are in this world? I bet, I bet so. That would be an indication that we're spending our currency on the wrong things. That would be an indication that we're hungry for something that's bread, something that will satisfy our thirst. Now, this invitation, as bold as it is, is quite interesting, particularly when you compare it to what Isaiah has said back in chapter 6 when he was conveying his calling into ministry. In which he said in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, God said to him, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What? So God tells Isaiah when he is beginning his ministry to his people Israel and primarily to the nation of Judah all of these things that I'm preaching, you're not going to understand it because God's going to close your ears. He's going to shut your eyes from seeing the truth. But nevertheless, the truth will be preached and it will accomplish that which God intends. But here, in chapter 55, he says, keep me your ear. Listen up. Because this message is intended to save you. This message is intended to, as your soul lives, there will be a covenant made with you. God says, 
on my part. And it's going to be an everlasting covenant, verse 3. And notice the way he describes this covenant. An everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Why? Because I made him a witness, verse 4, to the peoples. A leader and commander for the peoples. So this everlasting covenant that is offered to us by God that brings us life to our soul as water and bread does for the body, but in an everlasting way, is an everlasting covenant based on the love that God had for David. So it begs the question, what's the big deal with David? Well, before we do so, we need to go and consider what Paul, to put this in context, to sort of a, prepare us for this, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Therefore remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, the Jews looked at you and called you unclean, which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now that should ring true to everybody that's in this place, that's listening to this, that is a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because you understand that you were once outside, and even though you are not a Jew, you have been made a partaker into the promise that was given to the Jews. What was that promise? Well, we go back to what Tim was alluding to last week, but we'll take a little bit different uh, Take on it from Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. So we understand that God is calling through Abraham his people. He says in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 17, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Ah, here we get this picture that God is calling one nation through Abraham, but he's saying, I'm also going to be the God of many nations. He goes on, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. And get this, kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for what? An everlasting covenant to be God to you and to be and to your offspring after you. So we find ourselves as believers in Christ having been outside outside of this group that God called through Abraham, but God told Abraham that there would be even other nations besides yours. And this that leads us to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we hear about this covenant with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. I don't think you have all those verses up there, but in verse 8, it says, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, God is speaking to Nathan the prophet, 
to King David, now that he's in Jerusalem, having defeated all the enemies, he says, Therefore you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. Prince, kings, through Abraham, covenant, keep that in mind. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name like a name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them, those people, through Abraham. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now remember, when God speaks about a house, the children of Israel, remember when they came out of Egypt? And they had this tent. It's called a tabernacle. And that was where God's presence dwelt. Now in the life of David, God is promising to build a house. A permanent structure. Not that temporal uh, Ark of the Covenant that they were carrying around and it, like, putting the tent stakes in and pulling them out and moving around. But he's going to build them a house. For he says in verse 11, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 10, And I will appoint a, people, a plant them so that you may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Abraham got a promise to be a father of many nations through whom kings would come. Now David is receiving a promise that there is going to be a kingdom through you. And he says in verse 13, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, David, you're going to have a son who's going to be king and there will be no end to his reign. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with stripes of the sons of men. But with my steadfast love, I will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul when I put away from, uh, I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is a promise from God to David. It's related to the promise that God gave to Abraham. And it's a promise not only for a people that will reach many other people, for a place in which they will dwell in peace, but also for a king who will reign forever. Now, Abraham didn't see the country that God promised him. Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us of that. He saw it afar off, but he desired a better country, a heavenly one. Paul didn't see, I'm sorry, David didn't see the house of God. He wanted to build it. God said, nope, your son's going to build it. Solomon did. However, in Romans chapter 1, we do see the promise 
that God gave to David somewhat fulfilled. In Paul's introduction to the book of Romans, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and the apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Genesis. Abraham. Through whom you, uh, it's going to be through you that all the nations will be blessed. You'll be a father of many nations. There's going to be a kingdom forever. Kings are going to come from you. David, you're going to be the king. Your son's going to reign forever. And guess what? It's Jesus Christ, because it is through him that we have seen not only the scriptures fulfilled, but the resurrection of the dead, which is a confirmation of Jesus Christ as Lord. And that is where we find through the grace of God, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. You say, I may, preacher, I did not catch any of that. But that's full circle. That is in a very short amount of time, but not short enough for some of you, I know. Uh, but a short amount of time from one end to the Bible to the other end of what God promised and what God fulfilled. And you say, okay, well, what about Isaiah 55? I'm glad you asked. Because remember, God said, incline your ear, come to me, that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, a covenant that's associated with my steadfast, sure love for David. Come because what I offer you is going to be as long-lasting and eternal as that which I promised David, the one I loved. The reign of David's son is my promise to you. That's what I offer you. That's what I invite you to partake of. So behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. As he speaks to Israel, he's saying, there are nations that you're not even aware of that will know me. And nations that did not know you, but they will know me. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. That is amazing. That God would still choose to work through these people who were on their way to exile because of their disobedience and would, once they leave exile and return home, go back to what they had suffered through because of their sin. God says, it is still through you that I will keep my word because what I have made is an everlasting covenant. So we find that the gospel that we need needs to be eternal in nature, not a temporal one. Now moving forward, I can promise you each of these next points are not nearly as long as the first one. Maybe. But we also see that a gospel that we need requires immediate attention. Not hesitation. Not deliberation. But in Isaiah 55 verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. 
Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that the Lord may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. These are amazing words. And as you find yourself as a sinner, as you look into the mirror of God's word, You see more and more of the great promise this is. In other words, repent. Seek the Lord while He is near. So I don't see Him anywhere. Well, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit, according to the psalmist. When the Word of God is preached, when the glory of God is declared from His Word, and you're humbled in your sinfulness, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. I ask you today to consider, is He near? Is He near to you today? See, repentance today results in compassionate pardon. We have no promise of tomorrow. We have no promise. If you can recall back in Genesis chapter 6, before the, in the days of Noah, there is a bone-chilling statement that's made in which the Spirit of God says, I will not always dwell with man. If you don't understand the gravity of that, then perhaps you need to spend more time thinking about the holiness and the grace of God. For when you see what happened as a result of God removing His Spirit and His judgment being poured out on the earth, that is a very devastating thing that we can't comprehend in our minds. They had a moment to repent and turn. But by God's grace, there are only eight. In today's world in which we live, it may seem as if there's only eight that has been redeemed by the grace of God, but the invitation goes forth. But we don't have the promise of thinking it through. We don't have the, the, the ability to, to, or the luxury of saying, you know what, let me just kind of think this and mull this over and make sure this is the best plan for me. And let me make sure this is really what I need right now in my life because, you know, you really don't understand how my life's complicated right now. I've, I've got, you know, school to get through. I've got a job to start. I've got a career to, to, to take on. I've got a family to raise. I've got people to marry. I've got whatever. We're not promised Another moment. Today is the day of salvation. While the Lord may be found, seek Him. Call upon Him while He is near. Matthew Henry put it this way, He will not deal with us as our sins have deserved, but will have compassion on us. Misery is the object of mercy. Now both the consequences of sin by which we have become truly miserable and the nature of repentance by which we are made sensible of our misery and are brought to bemoan ourselves, both these make us objects of pity and with God there are tender mercies. Have you found yourself pitiful yet? Have you found yourself miserable yet? Have you found yourself 
without any worth in and of yourself? Have you found yourself without hope? If you have, then that invitation that says, Come, I, I don't have anything to bring. I don't have any, anything good on my own. I, 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 I can't work myself. I can't do enough. I don't have enough talent. I don't have enough ability. I don't have enough appearance to, 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 to attract God. Thankfully, God is attracted to, to pity. God is attracted to misery. God is attracted to those who were humbled in their sinfulness and He will save. He will have compassion. He will abundantly pardon if we simply will seek Him. But that requires us to turn loose. That requires us to repent. That requires us to, to stop clinging to the things of this world. We need a gospel that requires immediate attention, not hesitation. We need a gospel that depends on the Word. In commentary on what he has just said, the Lord says in verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's as if God is saying, I know this is not the way you would save the world. It's as if God is saying, I understand there's all different types of things you would love to add to the gospel. I know there's many things that I haven't said in my word explicitly that you would like to identify as the gospel. But your ways aren't my ways. <laughs> and God has clearly revealed to us His ways. You know, oftentimes we ask ourselves the question if something is morally right or wrong or not. And we have two categories. You know, well, if there's nothing that's said about it, then it must be okay. But if there's something said about it, then, then, then it would be absolute on it, right? We have this black and white, and then we have these gray areas we like to hold on to. But let's be very sure about one thing. That when it comes to the gospel... When it comes to the need for God to have compassion upon the humble, repentant sinner, when it comes to the truth that God will redeem and God will purchase out of their, sla out of their slavery of sin, that God will save the sinner by His grace, through faith, we have all that we need. Our gospel is quite sufficient. What God has said is sufficient. Is that all right with y'all? It's all right with me. Because again, I can come up with all different types of things I'd like to paint and decorate the gospel with. I've got my list of do's and don'ts that I would love to attach. 
My, my room of comfort where I would like to say, you know, if everybody could just do what I do and look like I look and, and talk like I talk, then I would be really great with this. If people could find my issues and, and all my cultural needs and all of my felt needs, if I could just sort of somehow decorate the gospel with that, I would be so much happier. But God says, my ways aren't your ways. My way is simple. You humble yourself, I save you. I like that. And the only way we're going to get that gospel is when the word is preached. We don't need higher education. We don't need cultural reform. We don't need inclusion or diversity. We don't need anything that's going to fix man's problems. We just simply need a sovereign God who, while we were yet sinners, die for us, raised from the grave to give us the promise of life and to by his grace imparting his spirit into our life and awakening up this dead life to newness. That's what we need. And that's what God gives. So let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as the children of Israel out in the wilderness. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's sufficient. So let's preach the word. And then lastly, a gospel that promises a new life. Not endless strife. Verse 12 Isaiah says, For you shall go out in joy and be led in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Tim was talking about earlier that what we look ahead it's future. What we sing about in some ways is future. We enjoy it. We try to replicate it here as much as we can, but it's future. And whether you want to take this literally and believe that this is going to be a transformation of the world in which we live, or if you want to take this as symbolic in the way our lives are going to be different, either way works for me. I believe the right way. If you want to know what that is, see me after the service. But what God is saying here is this is a, this is a gospel that, that promotes new life one of the things that I as much as I get excited in the springtime because springtime is my favorite season of the year it's because I, I know things are about to get green again I know that things are about to grow and I go out in my little patch of, of, of dirt out in the backyard and I'm going to plant some things I know things are going to come up like weeds and clover and grass that is much finer than anything in the rest of my yard. And I know that if I'm going to have any life in any of those plants, what I'm going to have to do every year, regardless of what Lowe's or Home Depot or anybody else, Ace Hardware, wants to sell you, there is no avoiding weeds, thorns, things that will choke out the growth. And you have to go out and you have to you just have to pull them up. Let's get rid of. I do a lot of my most contemplation and, and consideration of the doctrines of God as I'm sitting on a five-gallon bucket turned upside down and pulling these weeds out of the garden one by one because that's only you just can't pull the top. You got to get the roots. Yeah, 
pull them all out. Had to do it every time. And my life seemed like every day having to pull a weed, having to pull a thorn. Things that are complicating my life and I have to keep pulling them out. I have to keep repenting. I have to keep confessing. I have to keep ridding these things of my life. Oh, but there's a covenant being made with me through God's loved one, David, that is mine through Jesus Christ that one day is coming where there won't be any more weeds. My sin will be behind me. It'll all be done. And that the cypress, which is used to make quality furniture and, and precious pieces of furniture, and the myrtle, which blooms so beautifully and, and just catches your attention, and, and just you have to stop and adore. That's what life will be like. I don't want a gospel that says. Keep on, and if you pull enough weeds, and maybe, maybe, God will let less weeds grow next year. Or if you pull those thorns out this year, maybe next year they won't hurt so much because your hands will be calloused. But no, the promise is that there will be newness of life. And it's going to be, and it will make a name for the Lord, an everlasting son that shall not be cut off. What's your response to that message? You hear Isaiah say, come. Those of you who are thirsty, come drink. Those who have no money, come buy and eat bread. Be, be full of rich food. How does that invitation catch you today? Are there distractions in your mind even right now? I, I don't have time to think about that right now. Yeah, I, I dealt with that when I was a teenager or when I was a kid in Christian camp. Or, nah, you know, I, 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 it, I think that I'm doing pretty good. I, I think I'm handling it. All right. Don't really need it. Not really focused on what life's going to be like in the future because right now things are really pretty good and exciting for me right now. At this point in my life, things are, I, I can, boy, I can, see, I can see my career. I can see my family. I can see all this kind of stuff. How does that invitation, does it really beck it? Does it get your attention? You know what the most convicting part of the preparation for this message was? Is when I was considering that question, I was thinking, the way I respond to that invitation is going to be reflected in the way I evangelize. And what I mean by that is if I don't need it, my neighbor don't need it. I'm doing all right without really focusing on what I'm thirsty for and something that's going to satisfy my everlasting thirst through this everlasting covenant, then the person I work with really probably won't care about it either. However, if I see myself as a <laughs> broken, futile, waste of life, but yet God called out to me and said, hey, I've got what you need and it will satisfy you forever. And I respond to that. And I drink of this water and I find that it's good. 
It's not that I'm, I'm thirsty, but I just can't get enough of this water. And I'm distracted from all the other things that are, that are pulling at me, all those weeds that are growing up in my life. And I find this fulfilling. How can I not share that with somebody else? If I buy a new vehicle, guess what? I don't have any problems with talking to somebody around the water cooler about that. If my team wins the Super Bowl, I have absolutely no problem with you know, starting up a conversation. Hey, did you see my team? and wearing a t-shirt about it. But my, my family's added to, or uh, if, if something, uh, a wedding, or uh, you know, a birthday, or, or something like that happens, I have no problem saying, hey, I uh, hope this doesn't offend you, but I just turned, I had a birthday. You know, the, you know, I'm not trying to you know, get, you know, talk to you about your birthday, but just, we don't have any problems with stuff like that, do we? Social media is full of our beckoning out to people with things that have changed our life and things that appeal to us. My wife even now, and I'm not, I have to be careful because I don't want, you know. But every time she sees a new cat video, hey, Mark, come here. Check this out. This is so funny. Most of the time it is. The other time it just looks like our cat. Yes. That's why I'm up here and you're down there. But when was the last time you were just so overwhelmed by the everlasting covenant that God has made with you through his servant David? You say, hey, 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 guy. <laughs> and we get the opportunities, right? How was your weekend go? Oh, we, it's all right. Went to go see a movie. I went out to eat. Went to church. Had some great songs about God. No. We have to be very <laughs> be very careful. Have to get our plan together. Don't know exactly what I'm going to say. Got to be respond. Uh, we got to be ready to respond to their hard questions, right? No, all I need to do, all I need to do is say, hey, come. <laughs> come over here. I've got something good to tell you about. Oh, that God would help us do that. And perhaps as we close, and yes, I know what a time it is. But as we close, I'd like for Richard and for Heather to come and lead us in singing a song that may remind us about just how of a great God a great Lord and Savior we have, a Redeemer that we have, a Redeemer that we need, and one that I pray that as we leave this place that we will be excited and can't wait for the opportunity to share Him with others.